History of England, Chapter 13, Part 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England, from the Accession of James II, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter 13, Part 10. The friends of the government in vain attempted to divert the attention of the Parliament from the business of persecuting the Dalrymple family to the important and pressing question of church government. They said that the old system had been abolished, that no other system had been substituted, that it was impossible to say what was the established religion of the kingdom, and that the first duty of the legislature was to put an end to an anarchy which was daily producing disasters and crimes. The leaders of the club were not to be so drawn away from their object. It was moved and resolved that the consideration of ecclesiastical affairs should be postponed till secular affairs had been settled. The unjust and absurd act of incapacitation was carried by seventy-four voices to twenty-four. Another vote still more obviously aimed at the House of Stair speedily followed. The Parliament laid claim to a veto on the nomination of the judges, and assumed the power of stopping the signet, in other words, of suspending the whole administration of justice, till this claim should be allowed. It was plain from what passed in debate, that though the chiefs of the club had begun with the court of session, they did not mean to end there. The arguments used by Sir Patrick Hume and others led directly to the conclusion that the king ought not to have the appointment of any great public functionary. Sir Patrick indeed avowed, both in speech and in writing, his opinion that the whole patronage of the realm ought to be transferred from the crown to the estates. When the place of treasurer, of chancellor, of secretary was vacant, the Parliament ought to submit two or three names to His Majesty, and one of those names His Majesty ought to be bound to select. All this time the estates obstinately refused to grant any supply till their acts should have been touched with the sceptre. The Lord High Commissioner was at length so much provoked by their perverseness that, after long temporizing, he refused to touch even acts which were in themselves unobjectionable and to which his instructions empowered him to consent. The state of things would have ended in some great convulsion if the King of Scotland had not been also King of a much greater and more opulent kingdom. Charles I had never found any Parliament at Westminster more unmanageable than William during the session found the Parliament at Edinburgh. But it was not in the power of the Parliament at Edinburgh to put on William such a pressure as the Parliament at Westminster had put on Charles. A refusal of supplies at Westminster was a serious thing, and left the sovereign no choice except to yield or to raise money by unconstitutional means. But a refusal of supplies at Edinburgh reduced him to no such dilemma. The largest sum that he could hope to receive from Scotland in a year was less than what he received from England every fortnight. He had therefore only to entrench himself within the limits of his undoubted prerogative, and there to remain on the defensive till some favorable conjuncture should arrive. 
While these things were passing in the Parliament House, the civil war in the Highlands, having been during a few weeks suspended, broke forth again more violently than before. Since the splendor of the House of Argyle had been eclipsed, no Gaelic chief could vie in power with the Marquess of Athol. The district from which he took his title, and of which he might almost be called the sovereign, was in extent larger than an ordinary county, and was more fertile, more diligently cultivated, and more thickly peopled than the greater part of the highlands. The men who followed his banner were supposed to be not less numerous than all the Macdonalds and Maclean's united, and were in strength and courage inferior to no tribe in the mountains. But the clan had been made insignificant by the insignificance of the chief. The Marquess was the falsest, the most fickle, the most pusillanimous of mankind. Already in the short space of six months he had been several times a Jacobite, and several times a Williamite. Both Jacobites and Williamites regarded him with contempt and distrust, which respect for his immense power prevented them from fully expressing. After repeatedly vowing fidelity to both parties, and repeatedly betraying both, he began to think that he should best provide for his safety by abdicating the functions both of a peer and of a chieftain, by absenting himself both from the Parliament House at Edinburgh and from his castle in the mountains, and by quitting the country to which he was bound by every tie of duty and honor at the very crisis of her fate. While all Scotland was waiting with impatience and anxiety to see in which army his numerous retainers would be arrayed, he stole away to England, settled himself at Bath, and pretended to drink the waters. His principality, left without a head, was divided against itself. The general leaning of the Othal men was towards King James, for they had been employed by him only four years before, as the ministers of his vengeance against the House of Argyle. They had garrisoned Inverary, they had ravaged Lorne, they had demolished houses, cut down fruit trees, burned fishing boats, broken millstones, hanged campbells, and were therefore not likely to be pleased by the prospect of Macallum More's restoration. One word from the Marquess would have sent two thousand claymores to the Jacobite side, but that word he would not speak, and the consequence was that the conduct of his followers was as irresolute and inconsistent as his own. While they were waiting for some indication of his wishes, they were called to arms at once by two leaders, either of whom might, with some show of reason, claim to be considered as a representative of the absent chief. Lord Murray, the Marquess's eldest son, who was married to a daughter of the Duke of Hamilton, declared for King William. Stuart of Ballinac, the Marquess's confidential agent, declared for King James. The people knew not which summons to obey. He, whose authority would have been held in profound reverence, had plighted faith to both sides, and had then run away for fear of being under the necessity of joining either. Nor was it very easy to say whether the place which he left vacant belonged to his steward or to his heir apparent. The most important military post in Athol was Blair Castle. The house which now bears that name is not distinguished by any striking peculiarity 
from other country seats of the aristocracy. The old building was a lofty tower of rude architecture, which commanded a vale watered by the gari. The wall would have offered very little resistance to a battering train, but were quite strong enough to keep the herdsmen of the Grampians in awe. About five miles south of this stronghold, the valley of the Gari contracts itself into the celebrated glen of Killacrankey. At present a highway as smooth as any road in Middlesex ascends gently from the low country to the summit of the defile. White villas peep from the birch forest, and on a fine summer day there is scarcely a turn of the pass at which may not be seen some angler casting his fly on the foam of the river, some artist sketching a pinnacle of rock, or some party of pleasure banqueting on the turf in the fretwork of shade and sunshine. But in the days of William the Third, Killacronky was mentioned with horror by the peaceful and industrious inhabitants of the Perthshire lowlands. It was deemed the most perilous of all those dark ravines through which the marauders of the hills were wont to sally forth. The sound, so musical to modern ears, of the river brawling round the mossy rocks and among the smooth pebbles, the dark masses of crag and verdure worthy of the pencil of Wilson, the fantastic peaks bathed at sunrise and sunset with rich light as that which glows on the canvas of Claude, suggested to our ancestors thoughts of murderous ambuscades and of bodies stripped, gashed, and abandoned to the birds of prey. The only path was narrow and rugged. A horse could with difficulty be led up, two men could hardly walk abreast, and in some places the way ran so close to the precipice that the traveller had great need of a steady eye and foot. Many years later the first Duke of Athol constructed a road up which it was just possible to drag his coach. But even that road was so steep and so straight that a handful of resolute men might have defended it against an army. Nor did any Saxon consider a visit to Killacranky as a pleasure till experience had taught the English government that the weapons by which the Highlanders would be most effectually subdued were the pickaxe and the spade. The country which lay just above this pass was now the theatre of a war, such as the Highlands had not often witnessed. Men wearing the same tartan, and attached to the same lord, were arrayed against each other. The name of the absent chief was used, with some show of reason, on both sides. Balanac, at the head of a body of vassals, who considered him as the representative of the Marquess, occupied Blair Castle. Murray, with twelve hundred followers, appeared before the walls and demanded to be admitted into the mansion of his family, the mansion which would one day be his own. The garrison refused to open the gates. Messengers were sent off by the besiegers to Edinburgh and by the besieged to Lochaber. In both places the tidings produced great agitation. Mackay and Dundee agreed in thinking that the crisis required prompt and strenuous exertion. On the fate of Blair Castle probably depended the fate of all Athol. On the fate of Athol might depend the fate of Scotland. Mackay hastened northward and ordered his troops to assemble in the low country of Perthshire. Some of them were quartered at such a distance that they did not arrive in time. He soon, however, had with him three Scotch regiments, which had served in Holland,
and which bore the names of their colonels, Mackay himself, Balfour, and Ramsay. There was also a gallant regiment of infantry from England, then called Hastings, but now known as the 13th of the line. With these old troops were joined regiments newly levied in the lowlands. One of them was commanded by Lord Kenmore, the other which had been raised on the border, and which is still styled the king's own borderers, by Lord Leven. Two troops of horse, Lord Annandale's and Lord Belhaven's, probably made up the army to the number of above three thousand men. Belhaven rode at the head of his troops, but Annandale, the most factious of all Montgomery's followers, preferred the club and the Parliament House to the field. Dundee, meanwhile, had summoned all the clans which acknowledged his commission to assemble for an expedition into Athol. His exertions were strenuously seconded by Lochiel. The fiery crosses were sent again in all haste through Appin and Ardnamurchan, up Glenmore and along Lochleven. But the call was so unexpected, and the time allowed was so short, that the muster was not a very full one. The whole number of broadswords seems to have been under three thousand. With this force such as it was, Dundee set forth. On his march he was joined by succors which had just arrived from Ulster. They consisted of little more than three hundred Irish foot, ill-armed, ill-clothed, and ill-disciplined. Their commander was an officer named Cannon, who had seen service in the Netherlands, and who might perhaps have acquitted himself well in a subordinate post and in a regular army, but who was altogether unequal to the part now assigned to him. He had already loitered among the Hebrides so long that some ships which had been sent with him, and which were laden with stores, had been taken by English cruisers. He and his soldiers had with difficulty escaped the same fate. Incompetent as he was, he bore a commission which gave him military rank in Scotland next to Dundee. The disappointment was severe. In truth, James would have done better to withhold all assistance from the Highlanders than to mock them by sending them, instead of the well-appointed army which they had asked and expected, a rabble contemptible in numbers and appearance. It was now evident that whatever was done for his cause in Scotland must be done by Scottish hands. End of chapter 13, part 10